love, peace, unity, understanding, harmony amongst one another. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Rip, roaring, ready to go. I give you my Sports Talk podcast with entertaining value. I give you the most entertaining, thought-provoking podcast that you can listen to. Rate, review, subscribe anywhere where you listen to podcasts and you will not be disappointed. I give you football, basketball, baseball, college football, college basketball, UFC, MMA, and of course the love of my life, the Georgetown Hoyas. And sometimes I might go a little bit farther and talk about what else is happening in the world. Wendell's World in Sports, the most awesome podcast that you can listen to. Rate, review, subscribe anywhere where you listen to your podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, Rip, roaring and ready to go, talking about what is happening in the world of sports. Before I get into what's happening in the Final Four, before I get into Duke, North Carolina, before I get into... Gonzaga as a basketball program. Before I get into all of the stuff that I want to speak about, before I get into the freeing of Kyrie to rejoin the Brooklyn Nets full-time, before I get into the Eastern Conference and how close it is in the NBA, before I get into any of those things, I just want to say this is the YouTube episode of Wendell's World of Sports. If you could like it, if you could like this episode, and you could subscribe to my channel, much, very much appreciated. And I have an audio version of Wendell's World of Sports. What you need to do, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, I just need you to go ahead. And I need you to type in W-E-N-D-E-L-L apostrophe S, Wendell's World and Sports. And then I want you to subscribe, download, rate, review, and most importantly, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast you can listen to. That would do me so much good. I, I, w- I would very much appreciate the special dedications for those from all over the world, all over the globe, YouTube and Spotify and iTunes and everybody else listening to this podcast, audio or YouTube episode-wise, very much appreciated. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wonder Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Okay, I'm recording this now with about two minutes left to go in the um, North Carolina-St. Peter's game. And it looks like North Carolina is on its way to the victory. So we have a Final Four in college basketball. We have Kansas versus Villanova. And then we have the Slugfest. We have the heavyweight bout. We have the main event. We have Denzel versus Tom Hanks. We have Clark Gable versus Humphrey Bogart. We have it all, man. Duke. Versus North Carolina. Does anybody really care about Kansas and Duke? No. The main event is going to be Duke versus North Carolina. One of the big rivalries in college sports. One of the big rivalries in sports. I'm not going to uh, put this up 
on the same level as an Ali Frazier, of course, but uh, just in terms of the magnitude of what's going to be happening this upcoming Saturday with Duke and North Carolina when you have the storyline of Coach Krzyzewski, Mike Krzyzewski, and his last appearance coaching in college basketball, coaching for Duke, going up against his going up against his rival North Carolina is going to be tasty. It's going to be ridiculously juicy, and I um, can't wait for it, man. So you're speaking about how they got there. Let's, let's, let's kind of get this out of the way. Kansas, easy victory over Miami of Florida. Then Villanova winning in Saturday, winning in ugly, sloppy, sluggish, ugly contest against Houston, 50-45. to 45. So Villanova makes it to their fourth Final Four appearance since 2009. They're third in the last uh, six tournaments. Hey, look, man, if you're Jay Wright, if you're Villanova, if you're a fan of Villanova, if you're the players, man, you don't give a doggone damn how you got to this Final Four. You don't care if you won this game 2 nothing. You don't care. They, they ain't giving points for how pretty it was or how glamorous it was or how many highlights there was or top 10 plays that there was. Man, all I need to do at the end of 40 minutes is have more points than the other team. If that's by 100 or 1, if, the, if I score 100, if I score 50, if I score 2, if I score 1, I don't give a damn. As long as I'm moving on to the Final Four, that's good enough for me. So... Jay Wright has, and the players have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of, especially as you speak about the last two times that they made it to the Final Four. They actually won the doggone thing. So um, while, again, the attention is going to be put on North Carolina and Duke, let's not sleep on the either Kansas Jayhawks, who look very, uh, who look very stout and very impressive against um, Miami of uh, Florida, uh, Miami of Florida, and then also Villanova. According to this game, we're just speaking about Villanova and Houston. According to ESPN Stats and Research, Villanova just shot 28% from the field. They were 15 of 52. That's the first team. That was the first time a team won an Elite Eight game while shooting under 30% from the floor since UCLA did it back in 1971 when UCLA shot. How could a team coached by John Wood in the 1971 shoot 29%? And they won! They made it to the Final Four. The Wildcats' 50 points were also tied for the fewest ever in an Elite Eight win. So you're speaking to yourself, how in the world did they shoot so poorly from the field? They only scored 54, oh, excuse me, 50 points. How in the world did they win? Houston did the Georgetown Hoyas this season. They shot 1 of 20 from the uh, three-point range and 17 of 58 from the floor. Very Georgetown Hoyas-like. So according to basketball, college basketball reference, it was Houston's worst shooting performance from the field since the 2013-14 season and his works marked from the three-point range in over a decade. What in the world of five slamma jamma? What in the world of Michael Young and Albert Franklin and Larry Michaud and Akeem the Dream Elijah Wan is going on with that squad? Man, unbelievable. So, hey, look, you're taking a look at this game between Villanova and um, Kansas, of course, the key for Villanova moving forward is the injury to Justin Moore. He was the team's second-leading scorer. Um, very important to the Wildcats along, Wildcats along with JT Samuels. So you're speaking about a team in Villanova that only really goes six deep to begin with, and now you're speaking about one of the leading players, the most important players, going down for Villanova. Jay Wright, after the game, was speaking about glass half full, no broken bones, glass half empty, 
probably is not uh, looking too great. So you have Colin Gillespie, Moore, Jermaine Samuels, Eric Dixon, Brandon Slater. They've all combined and missed one game all season long. And Caleb Daniels has missed just three games. So when people are speaking about COVID and all these other things, COVID protocols and stuff, Villanova has been one of the lucky teams not to have been really hit in a hard way in any of those aspects. But now the entry to Jermaine Samuels really puts a – Justin Moore, excuse me, really puts a damper on what the Villanova Wildcats can do against a very, very balanced Kansas basketball team. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, of course, the heavyweight bout, of course, what people are going to be speaking about for this Final Four moving up is going to be, my goodness, it's the Duke Blue Devils versus the North Carolina Tar Heels. Woo-wee. We've got Mike Krzyzewski on his uh, way out the door, and this is going to be awesome, and this is going to be great, and this is going to be legendary. This is going to be unbelievable. And can Coach K do the same thing that Al McGuire did when Marquette won over North Carolina in the final game of the season for Marquette to win a championship, and then afterwards Al McGuire retired? Is he going to be like – is he going to be Mike Krzyzewski going to be like John Wooden and his last game for UCLA, his last game coaching college basketball where he went out the winner? What exactly going to be happening? It's going to be interesting. It's going to be, but, but, but for me, but for me, one of the reasons why I say it before, I, ask, I absolutely love watching, participating, following NBA and NFL, the NFL, those leagues, compared to College, when you're speaking about college basketball or college football, number one, the, the level of play is eons better in both instances. But also, I, I, I like to pay attention, and I like to talk about the guys who are going to be settling it on the court. And one of the things that uh, you know, college football and college basketball has had in terms of its distinction or difference when you're going to be comparing it to the professional leagues of football and basketball is the importance in the spotlight shown on the head coaches. When you're speaking about Mike Krzyzewski, when you're speaking about Roy Williams, when you're speaking about Bill Self, when you're speaking about John Calipari, even going back, when you speak about the names and the coaches who have identified, who have been uh, impactful in terms of growing the game of college basketball, I mean, we could talk about the players, sure, but right next to the players, and even sometimes more important than the players themselves, because they only stay in college for four years, then three years, then two years, and one year, is the fact that now or even back then, the coaches, in terms of visibility, in terms of getting people to follow the game, to become attracted to the game, was was coaches. When you speak of John Cheney, when you speak of Bob Knight, when you speak of John Thompson, when you speak of Raleigh Massimino, when you speak of Luke Carnesecca, when you speak of Jim Beheim, when you speak of Lefty Giselle, when you speak of Bill Foster, when you speak of Dean Smith, when you speak of all of these great legendary coaches, North Carolina's coming into town. This, that, the other. Georgetown's coming into town. UNLV with Tarkanian is coming into town. Da, 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 da. It was more about Thompson and Georgetown. Dean Smith and North Carolina. Coach K and Duke were coming into town. You never get that with the you never get that with the NBA. When the Los Angeles Lakers with LeBron this year are coming into town, it ain't Frank Vogel and the Los Angeles Lakers are coming to town. Greg Popovich and the San Antonio Spurs are coming to town. Bill Jackson and the Chicago Bulls are coming to town. Pat Riley and the Los Angeles Lakers are coming into town. It's not like that. 
it's like LeBron's coming into town. Tim Duncan is coming into town. Magic Johnson's coming into town. Giannis is coming into town. LeBron is coming into town. Luka is coming into town. You know, Luka in the Mavericks. Giannis in the Bucks. LeBron in the Miami Heat or the Cleveland Cavaliers or the Los Angeles Lakers. They're coming into town. Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors are coming into town. Nobody's mentioning Steve Kerr. Nobody's mentioning Glenn Doc Rivers. Nobody's mentioning Michael Malone. It's all about the players. That's the attraction. College basketball is something else. Again, I understand it because the great players leave after now a year. And even college basketball in its heyday, great players were leaving after four years. The coaches were there for 20, 30, 40 years. So I get that. And But for me, it's all about the players. So this upcoming matchup between Duke and North Carolina with the star of the show being Mike Krzyzewski, doesn't do anything for me. So the hubbub and the speak and the scuttlebutt and the opinions and the and the talking head shows talking about Shashevsky this and Shashevsky that doesn't mean anything to me. It bores me, really bores me. Because for me, even in college, it's all it's all about the players. Even in high school, it's all about the players. Hey man, as we mentioned before, it's not about the X's and O's. It's about the Jimmies and the Joes. Now those X's and O's help them Jimmies and Joes. No question about it. But them X's and O's aren't going to overcome bad Jimmy's and Joe's. You know what I'm talking about? So, hey, they all roll together. But let me tell you something. Duke is not in the Final Four if it wasn't for the performance of Paulo Banquero or Wendell Moore or Mark Williams or, you know, or any of those guys. It had nothing to do with some unbelievable, incredible game plan that Coach Krzyzewski put together. And even if he did, he would still need the players to execute it. And if you take a look at that game that Duke had against Texas Tech, you take a look at the game that uh, Duke played in the Elite Eight against Arkansas, it was just a matter of, you take a look at the players. The athletes for those other teams might have been play, might have been better. But there's a reason why that Duke had the five stars and Arkansas had the four stars mixed in with one or two five stars. Duke had five stars mixed in with a couple of four stars in terms of talent on their team. That goes a long way. That goes a long, long way. So I want to see those five stars play because those five stars are going to be responsible for Coach K winning this championship, not the other way around. And I'm not saying that you bring in a bum to coach that team and all of a sudden they're going to still win a championship. No, 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 no. But, again, if you don't have the Jimmys and the Joes, I don't care about your relationships and your knowledge and your knowledge of the X's and the O's. Wendell's World in Sports I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could beat us, uh, beat us and see us. So you have this upcoming game, as I mentioned before, UNC and Duke, and you're going to have the uh, folks talk about this is unbelievable and this is great. And, you know, the irony that's mixed in that Coach K is going to be looking to leave and going up against their heated rival and all those type of things. H- here's the thing, and look, you know what? As always, I-, I-, I like a rivalry like this because, yeah, you have some – dislike and yeah between the fan bases you have some i don't like you you don't like me let's just get it on like donkey kong but the thing is is that hey man the respect that the two teams have for each other the fan bases might not like each other but let me tell you something hubert davis and mike krzyzewski don't have the angst toward each other there's another situation these players for duke going up against these players from north carolina (laughs) there ain't no hatred in their bones and their bodies for these guys come on man 
These guys have been going up with each other. These guys have been playing on the same AAU team. These guys have been playing on the same all-star games. These, games have, these guys have been playing on the same teams and such probably since they were 11 or 12 years old for the most part. With, a, with the campuses eight miles apart, Durham and Chapel Hill, what, it's, it's not fortified. It's not, you know, it's not sealed off by a, by a wall that Mexico paid for. I mean, this is a situation I'm quite sure right now. There's players from North Carolina, there's players from Duke. Hey, man, if there's going to be a, a sorority party, if there's going to be something happening at one of the campuses, if there's going to be a place where there's going to be some good-looking girls, eight miles, that's all that separates the uh, separates us from this party that's going to be thrown at Duke where there's going to be a couple of honeys, where there's going to be a lot of honeys. Shoot, you know I'll be there. These guys are mature enough. These guys are cool enough. These guys are good enough with each other not to come in there and be starting shit. So there's a, th- th- this hate that I think some of the fan bases want to have that these that these players need to have for each other. We need to I, th- these guys are our rivals. These guys are our heated rivals. Shoot, these kids are coming here and here. You know the reason why these kids chose Duke. You know why these kids chose North Carolina because it gave them the best opportunity to get themselves to the NBA quicker and then make that money and start making that brand. It gives them an opportunity to win a championship which in turn can help heighten their availability to be drafted in the lottery. It'll get them to the NBA quicker, and then that's good. These guys don't give a doggone about the history of North Carolina and Duke. They don't care. Folks from Duke, they don't care about the history of North Carolina. The players of today, they don't give a damn about what's happening in 1976. They don't give a damn about what happened in 1990s. They don't give a damn about any of that stuff. The reason why they're going to Duke is because Mike Krzyzewski is a coach that can get me into the NBA as quickly as possible, and that's exactly what I want to do. I ain't interested in staying here for four years and playing North Carolina. I don't give a damn in the one year that I'm here at Duke that North Carolina beats us by 100. If I'm going to be a lottery pick, see you later. That's fine. I mean, I won't be happy about it, but my my reasons for going to Duke or to go to North Carolina is not to uh, continue the rivalry. If to get myself ready for the NBA, get me on out of here and start building my brand. I have no interest in being the next guy who's going to be part of the fable story of the rivalry, which is between North Carolina and Duke. I'm trying to become the next Luca. I'm trying to become the next Steph. I'm trying to become the next LeBron. I'm trying to become the next Giannis. I'm trying to become the next KD. I'm trying to become the next superstar. I'm trying to become the next millionaire. I'm going to try to buy my mom not just one house, but two houses. I want to buy not just two cars, three cars, five cars, ten cars. I want to have myself a brand. I want to be able to retire with millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of dollars by the time that I'm 35. That's the reason why I'm going to Duke. That's the reason why I'm going to North Carolina. It's not to play against each other and flex our muscles and do all this type of stuff and we beat one another? Who cares? Who cares? So this quote-unquote rivalry that's being built up between between North Carolina and Duke, eh, come on now. That's between the fans. It ain't between the players. And when it comes again to Mike Krzyzewski doing his thing, that's great, man. Whether he wins or loses, he's still going to be a great coach. He's still going to be awesome. And as great as he is, the legacy that he has in the moment, him winning a championship. You the man. Unbelievable. Storybook ending. Hollywood, come on down here. Who's going to play Krzyzewski in the the movie 15 years from now? All of that stuff is fantastic. Man, you've got two potential Walt Disney Hollywood stories. 
that could be taken from this NCAA tournament. St. Peter's and Coach K winning the championship. But 15 years from now, 10 years from now, five years from now, how important, how long-lasting is this going to be? Great accomplishment. I'm not trying to mitigate or take anything away from uh, Krzyzewski, but they're going to hype this bad boy with Krzyzewski and the storyline to where this is going to be like something that's going to be long-lasting. Like this is going to go like in the annals of the history books in sports to where, man, you know, unbelievable. Coach Krzyzewski, the greatest coach in college basketball history, winning his final game. Oh, my goodness. Unbelievable. What a storybook ending. Man, five years from now, you're not going to remember this. Five years from now, you're not going to remember any of the story. If Duke, Duke wins this championship five, eight, ten years from now, in the year 2030, in the year 2027, in the year 2035, you ain't going to remember any of this stuff. You're not going to remember Coach K doing this, that, and the other. That's why for me, long-term, short-term, whatever, man, I just – just looking forward and taking a look at the game, enjoying the game, and watching the players play because the players are what gonna bring is what gonna is what is going to bring me in. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be uh, be with us. One more thing I want to say before what I really want to get into, which is the Gonzaga basketball program as it stands now, 23 years since they introduced themselves to the to the college basketball world and about 10 years since they became really serious players in terms of being one of the elite programs that could win a championship that was expected, that is now expected to win a championship in college basketball. I want to uh, mention this about St. Peter's. Great run. Wonderful run. Congratulations. You guys deserve the praise. You guys deserve the high five. You guys deserve the attention that you got. You guys deserve the spotlight that you got for the run that you made. The first 15 seed to make it all the way to the Elite Eight. Bravo. Bravo. Now get the hell out of here. Time for the big boys to play. Go go over there and sit in the corner. All right. Bedtime. It's bedtime for St. Peter's. The adults are going to go up and have some fun now. So y'all go to bed and get lost. You know, now it's time for uh, mama and daddy and their aunties and uncles to get together and, and start doing adult things. I've said it before on my other podcast, and I'll say it again. Look, I have no animus against St. Peter's. Again, I applaud them for what they did. But, you know, we're, we're, we're speaking about narratives. And we're speaking about storylines and narratives during the tournament. And we go to St. Peter's, number 15 seed, knocks off Kentucky, blue blood Kentucky, a Kentucky team that many people thought going into this tournament had a chance to make it to the Final Four, done. Then they move on. They're going to lose in the next round. Oh, shit, they won. They're going to lose in the next round. Oh, man, they won. They beat Purdue. Oh, man, I can't believe it. This is unbelievable. This is fantastic. North Carolina put the smack down on them, smack down on them, which means that there has still never been a true Cinderella to win themselves an NCAA tournament, which means that there really is no such thing as Cinderella, as far as my definition is concerned, in the NCAA basketball tournament. When everything is all said and done, guess what? It's going to be about the Blue Bloods. It's going to be about the elite programs. And thank goodness that's the way it should be. 
This is a tournament. This is not to decide who the best team in college basketball is. This is a tournament. In the NBA, when you play the best four out of seven in multiple rounds, you find out who the best team is. Major League Baseball, you play series, you find out who the best team is. Hockey, playing for Lord Stanley Cup, you play a couple of series, you find out who the best team is. Who's ever holding up the Stanley Cup? Who's ever holding up that uh, trophy in baseball? Who's ever holding up the LOB? They are truly the best team in that sport because they proved it in that tournament, which really is the best determination to figure out who the best team in that sport is for that league for that season. College basketball, this is just a tournament. This is going to decide who is the tournament champion. This is not to decide, I think, who the best team is. To have that moniker, maybe check the regular season, maybe, you know, have it your own way, like McDonald's or whatever fast food restaurant had that slogan. I don't know. But this is a situation where, look, the best teams from the best schools, from the best college basketball programs, from the best conferences, luckily get to the point to where we're going to figure out who was the best team during this tournament run. And with St. Peter's, nice run, wonderful run, magical run. You should be applauded. You should be congratulated. It was a heck of a heck of a run. Highly respected. Highly respected for you guys. But you ain't Cinderella. True Cinderella's in my book, true Cinderella's in my estimation, they win tournaments. They just don't compete in them and, 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 and be happy to collect second-place trophies or participation trophies. Coming into the Elite Eight, wonderful. That's Losing in the Elite Eight, that's a participation trophy. Losing in the Final Four, that's a participation trophy. Cinderella's don't get participation trophies. Now, if you would have won, if St. Peter's would have beaten North Carolina, if they would have beaten then Duke in the Final Four, then either beaten Kansas or Villanova in the final game. Cinderella! Cinderella! But no, this is far from being Cinderella. Let me ask you a question, because for me, if you're going to truly become Cinderella, what, what's the one thing, the great thing about Cinderella? It's staying power. I don't know when Walt Disney wrote the story about Cinderella, but it's been decades and decades and decades ago, and we still have the notion, we still have the story of Cinderella. It's still applied to many different things, and we know the story and everything like that. So the one thing about Cinderella, which is great and wonderful, is the staying power of the story itself. So when you place that moniker, when you put that label on a team and label them as Cinderella, this, for me, means that's a, this is something that's going to have to be remembered for a little bit. I'm not talking about for generations and generations and generations, but something in terms of a Cinderella run means that, man, this is going to be talked about for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, man. So I guess it does go through generations. But let me ask you this. Let's take a look. Let's take a look at some of the, let's take a look at some of the quote-unquote Cinderella's over the past few years. Let's concentrate on, um, let's concentrate on VCU. George Mason, Loyola of Chicago, Oral Roberts. Did I mention VCU? Let, 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 let's take a look at those. Davidson with Steph Curry. Let's take a look at those programs. Let's take a look at those schools. Let's take a look at those runs. Let's take a look at Florida Gulf Coast, okay? All right. Some of those runs were made as early as one year ago. Some of those runs were made as late as 10, 12, 13 years ago. All right? So, let me ask you this question for these Cinderellas. 
Florida Gulf Coast. Right? What uh, round did they lose in? Who'd they beat? What seed were they? What region were they playing in? Who was the coach of that team? Name me one player on that team. What round did they lose in? And who did they lose to? What city or town is Florida Gulf Coast in? Name me something about the university itself. And they'll apply those questions to VCU. George Mason. Lyle of Chicago. Name me something in terms of what they did. Now, quite sure there's some college basketball fans out there who can tell me some stuff. But for, for George Mason, when they made their run to the Final Four, unbelievable run. Which teams did they beat? What seed were they? Who was the coach? Is he coaching now? What players were on that team? What state is George Mason in? What city is George Mason in? And those same questions can be applied to VCU, Lyle of Chicago, except for the question, what city is Lyle of Chicago in? But for the most part, my, my point in all of this is to say, this run by St. Peter's, it's nice, but by next college basketball season, we're, for the most part, going to forget about this. No one's, we're going to go back for, I mean, St. Peter's is going to go back to being anonymous. I mean, it, for the, in the short term, it did great. It probably helped out their uh, applications and probably helped out their uh, university to the fullest. Fantastic. But the long-lasting effect that it's going to have from making this run is going to be mitigated rather quickly. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. So for me, again, if you want to say this was Cinderella, fine. I'm not here to dispute or argue with that. Everybody's definition is different. There is no right answer in terms of what is a Cinderella, what constitutes a Cinderella. You know, it's, it's an open-ended question with no real answer. For me, St. Peter's is not a Cinderella because of the examples that I gave and the reasons that I gave. So nice job for um, <laughs> nice job for St. Peter's, but we're going to be moving on. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what is happening in the world of sports, happening in the NCAA tournament. All right, I want to talk about the number one seed in the tournament that went down on Thursday, Gonzaga losing to Arkansas 74-68. The Bulldogs had never before lost in the Sweet 16 when they were a number one seed. Um, you want to speak about some of the highlights of the game, the lowlights of the game. Look, everybody's going to point to the refereeing. And the refereeing for that game was beyond atrocious. It would be an insult to atrocious to equate what the referees were in that game against uh, Gonzaga or the game featuring Gonzaga versus Arkansas. It was, it, was, it was terrible. It was atrocious. But before we go ahead and start lamenting on, you know, I can't believe it, uh, Chet Holmgren's third, fourth, and fifth foul was bullshit. It was nonsense. And that's the reason why Gonzaga lost the game along with a couple of other plays. No, no. I will agree with you. The third foul on Chet Holmgren was bogus. But if you want to bend and twist and try to explain Whatever. The fourth and fifth were egregious. The fourth and fifth were unforgivable. The fourth and fifth fouls on Chet Holgren were unforgivable, inexcusable. 
There was no, well, uh, well, well, see, uh, well, uh, no, see, uh, no, no. Bad calls all the way around. And you're going to go ahead and you're going to foul out the best player for Gonzaga outside of Drew Timmy, one of the most important players to, during the second half of that game, the best player for Gonzaga. Are you going to call a fourth and fifth foul on those type of plays? Horrendous. Horrendous. But that wasn't the reason why Gonzaga lost. I'm sorry, man. No matter how bad the refereeing was, you can't shoot 37% from the field. You can't go 55% on layups as far as percentage is concerned. And you can't go 5 for 21 on threes and then bellyache about how the referees took the game from you. You can't have a starting backcourt that's going to shoot 5 for 21 from the field, go 3 of 10 from the three-point line, and then whine and cry about the referees taking the game from you. You can't talk about a team in Gonzaga that only had nine assists compared to 15 turnovers, and then talk about how the referees took the game away from you. You can't talk about how the referees took the game away from you from, yes, where, yes, you could point to egregious, horrendous non-calls and calls that were made against Gonzaga. But you can also take a look and say that the inconsistencies of fouls and no fouls being called were also bad for Arkansas. Because, yeah, Chet Holmgren's fouls, fourth and fifth, were bad, there was a situation where an Arkansas player stepped down on the left baseline, which the referees didn't call, which ended up in the three. Yes, there was a tripping penalty that should have been called out front on Arkansas in the pick and roll that wasn't being called. Yes, all of those things I take into the argument. But, man, let me ask you a question for those who are bellyaching about the referees took this game from Gonzaga or were one of the main culprits in Gonzaga losing this game. Let me ask you a question. How many times were the officials going to let Drew Timmy get away with get away with that offensive foul when he was spinning to the middle or the baseline off a post move? How many times was he going to be allowed to do that and get away with it? Because there were a lot. There were a lot. Arkansas was the more physical team. Arkansas played their style of ball. Arkansas was the more athletic team. And it was a situation where if you're going to beat Gonzaga – that's the way to beat them because Gonzaga, while they have good athletes, they don't have uber-athletes. And Arkansas had uber-athletes who were long, who were lanky, who were 6'5", the 6'7", six, 6'8", six, and those are the type of teams that always cause Gonzaga trouble, especially the greatest example is the championship game from last season where Gonzaga was looking to go undefeated, and they met a team in Baylor who was just – Physically dominant in every way possible. Jumping, running, size, strength, everything. The Achilles heel for Gonzaga. And some Achilles heel, they're still one of the best programs in college basketball and one of the best runs in college basketball over a long period of time. But um, against Arkansas, again, it was the thing that that, um, that uh, was the Achilles heel for Gonzaga in terms of matching the physicality and the athleticism of the other team, did them in. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. You know, and, and I'm thinking about this because there's been a lot of hubbub-a-loob and there's been a lot of talk about college officiating and how bad it's been. And, and, and they'll never do this, but it's almost getting to the point where, I don't know, maybe a network will do it. Being partners with the NCAA, they probably won't. But it's going to get to the point where y y you, you watch boxing, right? And with judges at the beginning of a fight, 
or maybe the end of the fight when they go to the judges' scorecard and they start saying who the judges are and they start listing some of the scores and fights that they did beforehand. So they can kind of give you a little heads up just in case something squirrely happens that, yeah, you could tell by this judge and the score that he gave when he judged this fight that, yeah, he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, but yet and still the commission is still going to put him in the position to judge fights. I think we might be getting with that soon for the NCAA tournament. The officials working the game, they're going to be mentioned in other tournament games that they worked. So you could be taking a look at a situation where, like, you know, Joe Smith is going to be refereeing this game. He was the referee of this game, that game, and, you know, people are going to point back to say, oh, my goodness, I remember this game, that game. I remember he was horrible. I remember this miscall or, you know, Jane Doe was the referee for Gonzaga versus St. Mary's. Oh, I remember that game. That was on ESPN. I remember watching that game, and the third foul that they had on this person was horrific, and I remember this call that they missed, and I remember that game being so bad as far as officiating is concerned, this, that, and the other. Now, again, because of those thought processes by sports fans watching this game, the television folks and the NCAA, the college basketball and everything, those guys who are partners – in this relationship, they're not going to do anything to screw each other over like that. But I wouldn't be surprised if someone took the social media or put out some type of page or something like that to uh, kind of go ahead and do something like that because, you know, that that's what it's coming down to when you speak about the ineptitude of college basketball officials, the run that they had in terms of some really bad games in this NCAA tournament. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay, very quickly, let me get to uh, the state of Gonzaga basketball. What to make of Gonzaga basketball, the basketball program over the past 20-plus years, and what they're doing today. So when you take a look at the loss that they had of uh, to Arkansas, since 2001, when Gonzaga had gone up against a number one seed, a number two seed, or number three seed, they're one in 12. I told you Gonzaga sucks. I told you they're overrated. Hold on. <laughs> so that's something where it's kind of like, eh, not good. So if you take a look at the men's basketball program, their accomplishments over the past 23 years, that's a long time, man. That is a long time. They introduced themselves to March Madness and brought in the moniker Cinderella, or really brought Cinderella, that term, really into the forefront, what they did in 1999. Dan Monson was the coach at the time. Mark Few was the assistant where Gonzaga, they were seated 10th, this little small school from Spokane, Washington. They had three consecutive upsets before losing, and they close-fought game to top-seeded Connecticut in the Elite Eight. So, you know, unlike George Mason, unlike uh, Florida Gulf Coast, unlike VCU, Unlike other quote-unquote Cinderella's who had their one shining moment before they went back to irrelevancy, um, Gonzaga took that bad boy and they ran with it because after that season, after that season, and Gonzaga, Cinderella, the, the slipper still fits and all that type of nonsense, after that season, it's been 20 seasons of Gonzaga winning 25 games and almost all the time winning the West Coast Conference. They've been a top four seed in the NCAA tournament 11 times. They've been a number one seed five times. Three times in the past three seasons. 
They're the fourth program in the history of men's college basketball to go to seven consecutive Sweet 16s. You want to know the others? Duke, North Carolina, and UCLA. Blue blood, blue blood, blue blood. Gonzaga has been the other one. Sweet 16. So for those who are sitting there talking about, oh, big flipping deal, they win the WCC. Well, winning the WCC doesn't automatically put you in the Sweet 16. They've been to 23 consecutive NCAA tournaments, the third longest streak in the nation. You want to know the others? Michigan State and Kansas, the only other programs. They're the only program besides Kansas that has won at least one game in each of the last 12 NCAA tournaments. That has nothing, nothing to do with Gonzaga being overrated. Nothing. It has nothing to do with Gonzaga playing in the WCC. Nothing. Let me tell you something. Here on Wendell's World of Sports Podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Gonzaga is a national title win away from being the most remarkable college basketball program in stories in NCAA basketball history. Yeah. Yeah. One title. One win away from being one of the most remarkable college basketball programs and stories in NCAA basketball history. I ain't lying. A small, private, Jesuit, Catholic school way out there in Spokane, Washington, without any distinction or historical success from their basketball program. They don't have a history. Mike Krzyzewski elevated that program to otherworldly proportions, but Duke, before Mike Krzyzewski came, they had gone to an NCAA championship before losing to Joe B. Hall with Jack Gibbons scoring, scoring like 300 points in the uh, title game. I mean, Duke was a player in college basketball, big-time college basketball, for decades before Mike Krzyzewski elevated that program to places where no one else is going to go, maybe with the exception of Gonzaga. UCLA had John Wooden. Bill Self with Kansas. Kansas had Fog Allen and Wilt Chamberlain and such, and Larry Brown and such. Gonzaga was just some small, private, who gives a shit, where is Spokane, Washington? Why in the hell, college basketball, why in the hell would I want to go to Spokane, Washington? What five-star recruit is going to be going to Spokane, Washington? What really good basketball player that can elevate a basketball program to the heights of where Gonzaga has been for the the past two decades? Why in the hell is he going to be going to Spokane, Washington? I mean, hell, if you live in the Washington area or if you live in Washington State, from Tacoma all the way to Walla Walla, wouldn't you want to go to the University of Washington? Wouldn't you want to at least go to Washington State? Oregon's right down the road. Oregon State, at least you're playing the, playing the Pac-10. And if you're a player from Washington of, of, any great, um, of any great measure and you want to stay on the West Coast, you go to UCLA. Who in the hell wants to go to, who in the hell wants to, go to Gonzaga? How in the hell are you going to win at Gonzaga? Have you seen Spokane? I haven't, but it ain't Westwood. It's not uh, Northwest Washington, D.C. It's not College Park. They don't have females walking around that campus like they do at, uh, at, at North Carolina or at LSU or at Kansas. They don't have the same fever or basketball tradition. How in the hell does Gonzaga be as good as they are for that amount of time and people are still hating on them because they haven't won themselves a championship? 
and we're lauding and we're drooling and we're praising and we're bowing down and we're Cinderella this and Cinderella that with St. Peter's and VCU and George Mason and Loyola Chicago and all these other schools. And you know in five years those guys are going to go back to irrelevancy like George Mason and VCU already have. And this little small private Jesuit Catholic school in the middle of bumfuck uh, Washington or up, up near the Canadian border is still up there churning out a program, still churning out a program like this? How is that school overrated? What is your definition of, of Gonzaga being overrated? What were your expectations of Gonzaga on why they're overrated? Is it because they haven't won a championship yet? Okay. All right. Fine. L l let, me, let me throw a little something to you. Because I think, again, there's two generational great basketball programs and coaches that I feel are most related to Gonzaga and Mark Few. One is Jerry Tarkanian of UNLV, what he did to turn that program around. And the other one is John Thompson of Georgetown. If you take a look at what Jerry Tarkanian did 19 years at UNLV, where he won 83% of his games, 509 and 105, won the Pacific Coast Conference, won the Pacific Coast Athletic Association every season that UNLV was in it, 10 years. They were in a small conference. They were in a no-name conference. UNLV wasn't in the top 10. Anybody calling Jerry Tarkanian overrated? Anybody calling what UNLV did when he was at his heyday overrated? Made the NCAA tournament for 10 years, making the Final Four twice before Tarkanian won his championship in 1990 when they blew out Duke 103-73. Before Tarkanian, UNLV was nothing as a basketball program. They made the NCAA tournament four times, three times in a row from 67 to 69. Other than that, nothing. Nothing. UNLV was a no-account school as far as basketball is concerned and the conference of irrelevancy. No one cared about them, not even the folks out here in Vegas. Tarkinian made not just the basketball program an institution out here in Las Vegas, but he made it a nationwide phenom, especially when you're speaking about the black community, what Tarkinian did at his years when they had things rocking and rolling for over a decade at UNLV from, from Los Angeles to Maine in terms of the importance and the relevancy of that program. John Thompson, my man, Georgetown coach from 1972 to 1999, went 596-239, 71% winning percentage in 27 years at Georgetown University, 1984 NCAA tournament champions, six-time Big East conference champions, five-time Big East regular season champions, along with Jim Beheim in Syracuse, along with Raleigh Massimino in Villanova, along with Luke Karnaseka in St. John's, turned the Big East Conference within less than 10 years into one of the premier, if not the premier basketball program or basketball conferences in the nation. Before John Thompson came to Georgetown, Georgetown as a basketball program was nothing. Not even Paul Tagliabue playing for that team back in the day could add relevancy to that program. They were nothing. It took Big John 10 years and a couple of Final Fours and some Elite Eights to finally get his opportunity to win a championship. Or Georgetown uh, made it to the championship game where they beat uh, Houston and the remaining remnants of five slamma jamma. It's been 10 seasons since Gonzaga was considered true contenders to compete for a championship in, the, in an all-serious batter. Give the man some time. Mark Few's going to get it done. Look, man, in the building of the program, 
Gonzaga won their first tournament in 19, first tournament game in 1999, had their first NBA lottery pick in 2006, earned their first number one seed in 2013, made their first Final Four in 2017, and landed their first five-star recruit in Jalen Suggs in 2020. Building that program, baby. You think St. Peter's is going to do something like that? You think VCU was going to do something like that? Do you think George Mason was going to do something like that? No, no, no. It's hard. It's got to be hard. It took Mike Krzyzewski 10 years to win his first NCAA championship, and he was coming from Duke. 10 years playing in the ACC. He had been runner-up to Louisville in 1985 and 86, where, and then were blown out, uh, as I mentioned before, by UNLV 103 to 73. And people were questioning whether Mike Krzyzewski was ever going to be able to uh, win a championship, if he was going to be overrated. Won his first championship the next season, and the rest is history. So look, man, when you're winning 84% of your games like Mark Few is in 22 seasons, <laughs> no, 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 no disrespect. And if you say that Gonzaga is overrated, I would love to hear exactly what your reasons for that are. And again, I, I would love to hear it. Until I hear it, I can't say yay or nay on that. Maybe you're saying, look, Gonzaga's been in a position to win a championship, and the first time you get a chance to uh, win a championship, if you don't do it, you're a choking, uh, you're a choking program, and uh, if you're a choking program, you're overrated. If that's your definition of a of a choker, if that's your definition of a program being overrated, okay, different from mine. Who's right? Who's wrong? None of us. Not me. Not you. But you know, difference of opinion. All right, they'll they'll get that opportunity. Gonzaga will get that opportunity to win themselves a championship. Mark Few will get that opportunity to win a championship. That program is rolling. It's too it's too strong, and Mark Few is too good of a coach. So you can go ahead and talk that nonsense every single year, and talk about until they win a championship. The um, basketball program at Gonzaga is overrated. You can keep saying that stuff, but very soon, mark my words, mark them, you will be proven wrong. Well, I'm the jibber, jabber, sure like shabber. Breaks make your bank operating like trapper. John and me, yeah, that's what folks tell me. I plan on going far and be a star like Marcus Welby. So there, there, uh-huh. You're so yes, I make the buckets, scores and buckets like Menudo or Judo. I get it, I throw them when I gamble. And when I swing my king, I take the swing like Mickey Mantle. But um, I got more flavors in a pack an hour later. Beg your pardon, Mr. Cuba, but I love vanilla wafers. See, I got it going on because of the songs that I write. And welcome back to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I got about 15 minutes, so let me boogie, let me hustle, let me get down to what I want to talk about. The Eastern Conference in the NBA, the return of the Kyrie. Kyrie has been free. New York City Mayor Eric Adams allows athletes unvaccinated for COVID-19 to play home games. So you can say that New York City, they freed the Kyrie. What does that mean for the 
Nets, what does that mean for the playoff contenders in the Eastern Conference, especially if you're talking about the top three seeds in Miami, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia, and in the NBA playoffs in general moving forward in which the playoffs will begin on April 17th. What does that mean? Because if you take a look as of Sunday evening, the standings in the Eastern Conference with 10 games left to play, Miami, Boston, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, they're all separated by one game between the number one seed and the number four seed. Which one of those teams, how many of those teams are sitting there saying, okay, where exactly is Brooklyn? Because as far as a first-round playoff game, I don't want to play them. So if Brooklyn's going to be coming in as the eighth seed, if you're a fan of Miami or Philadelphia or Boston or Milwaukee, are you going to try to do everything that you can? Are you going to try to mini-tank to uh, see what you can do to avoid the duo of Kyrie and KD? Right now, if you take a look at some of the top-tier teams in the Eastern Conference here on Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast was yours truly, Wendell Wallace. The Philadelphia 76ers right now are playing at Phoenix. They've won three games in a row. Mixed results. They beat Miami. The other night, 113-106, Embiid and Harden weren't playing. So that speaks more, I think, of what's happening in Miami than what's going on in terms of this win with Philadelphia without Harden or Embiid. Was eh, very unimpressive in winning against the Lakers without LeBron and AD, 126-121 on Wednesday. Joel had 30 points and 10 rebounds then. On Friday, they come back and beat the Clippers 122-97. James Harden scoring 29 points, grabbing 15 rebounds, and Bede having 27 points and 10 rebounds. That's the Philadelphia 76ers team that needs to be seen more often playing against or the game they had against the Los Angeles Clippers moving forward. The Miami Heat, they're just struggling, man. They're just struggling. They've lost four games in a row, including a shorthanded uh, losing a shorthanded, uh, losing a game against Philadelphia shorthanded, 113-106. They blew a 17-point lead and were outscored 38-15 to in the fourth quarter to lose to the Knicks at home, 111-103. Then, last night, Saturday, they got spanked pretty good at home by the Brooklyn Nets, 110-95. Don't let that score fool you because the score wasn't as close as the game indicated. At one point, the uh, Heat were down by 37 points. And yeah, Eric Spolstra wasn't there to coach the game, but guess what? During the losing slide, they've had the starting lineup. They've had the starting lineup that's going to be in there for the playoffs, their preferred starting lineup. We've known about the Heat, Bam, and Jimmy, and Kyle Lowry missing teams. So, look, their preferred starting lineup of Kyle Lowry, Jimmy Butler, Duncan Robinson, P.J. Tucker, Bam out of Bayou playing. That's their team that's going into the that's going into the playoffs. That's their best team. Even though they played only 30 games together this season, that's the team that's going to be going into the playoffs. And they're getting trounced. They're getting embarrassed at home. And we saw that little scuffle, the incident on the sidelines the other day between Spolstra, Jimmy Butler, and Yadonis Haslam. I'm not saying that, look, there was a situation where this was a game situation that brought up the, those type of emotions. But this is something that had been brewing for a little while now. It'll be interesting to see now with this as evidence if the Miami Heat underachieve, are they going to bring that in as evidence to say, well, you could see the cracks were forming, and here's one of the biggest examples that we can uh, present to you. Normally, 
those type of disagreements, normally that type of animation toward each other, that anger, that, uh, you know, that spontaneous anger or that uh, what was shown on the court, that's normally kept in-house, that's normally kept under wraps to uh, let it go and let it boil over in front of that arena, very unheat-like, very unheat-like. Moving forward with this playoffs, man, and there, there's something else that I want to talk about with the Miami Heat, man. We, we speak about moving forward. What can the Heat do? Can the Heat win the championship by being the Miami Heat in terms of how they play, in terms of how hard they are, in terms of the fact that they don't stray too far from what they are, the responsibilities that each player has given. They, for the most part, don't go rogue and try to do something that they're not asked to do, that they're not capable of doing. I think the Miami Heat are one of the most disciplined teams in the NBA. But when you don't have yourself that superstar and you're going to be going up a Giannis, going up against a Giannis and an Embiid and a DeMar DeRozan or Zach Levine or um, uh, uh, Jason Tatum or one of those guys, does Miami have the player, a.k.a. Jimmy Butler, who's going to be able to match up against those guys through a seven-game series and do it on multiple series if the Heat are going to try to make the NBA playoffs. It'll be interesting. Or make the NBA finals. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Milwaukee Bucks still lurking about. They're, they're playing well. They're 7-3 in their last uh, 10 games, even though they got blown out the other night against the Memphis Grizzlies without John Morant, but they're playing well. The Boston Celtics are playing like the best team in the NBA, maybe outside of the Phoenix Suns. They've won 21 of their last 24 games. They're ranked as one of the top defensive teams in the NBA and a top 10 offensive squad. Might be a little bit of uh, might be a little bit of nervousness in terms of if the teams eventually are going to gang up and try to take the ball out of the hands of Jason Tatum and make someone else beat them. Who is going to be that person on a consistent basis? Now, most people will point to Jalen Brown. If Jalen Brown is going to be ready to do that, because outside of him, there really is nobody else who can take over that responsibility. It's not going to be uh, Smart. It's not going to be Derek White. It's not going to be Al Horford. It's not going to be uh, Robert Williams. It's not going to be uh, Peyton Pritchard. It's not going to be any of those guys. So if a night where Jason Tatum is not playing like his second-team All-NBA self, like he's playing at the level right now, are we confident that Jalen Brown can be that guy to uplift and to be that guy for a quarter, for a half, maybe even for a game to elevate Boston to win a playoff game. Maybe it be on the road and such. Maybe it be a game where it could put them in the driver's seat, so to speak, in a playoff series. We're going to find out on that. So the Boston Celtics, that type of thing, playing the best basketball, I think, in the NBA again outside of the Phoenix Suns. And then when you speak – about the number five seed, the number six seed, and number seven seed, and you speak about the Cleveland Cavaliers, and you speak about the Chicago Bulls, and you speak about the Toronto Raptors, and how those teams are basically two games in between the fifth and the seventh, and then lurking at the number eight seed, you have the Brooklyn Nets now with Kyrie back and doing a thing at 39 and 35. Um, I don't know if they're going to be able to catch the I don't know if they're going to be able to catch uh, Chicago or Toronto because right now they're 
uh, well, how much? They're two games behind Cleveland for the number seven spot, three games behind Toronto for the number six spot. So I don't know if they're going to be able to catch him, but man, Kyrie has been off the charts so far this month. Yeah, he had a little bit of an offensive letdown against the Heat on Saturday, but in the six-game stretch this month, this man is averaging almost 40 points a game while putting up 58% shooting, 55% from the three-point line, and 89% from the foul line. And just speaking about Kyrie putting on a performance like he did a couple of uh, weekends ago on Saturday, ABC Game of the Week against Milwaukee, where he poured in 38 against the Charlotte Hornets. He scored 50. I know Charlotte doesn't guard anybody, but 50 points in the game. It's still 50 points in the game. He had a career high, 60 points on 31 shots in 35 minutes against the Orlando Magic. If he wanted to, that man could have had Kobe in terms of 81-82 if he wanted to. The man had 41 at the half. Slowed down because the Magic were getting trounced by the Brooklyn Nets. But yes, 60 points on 31 shots in 35 minutes. And then against the Grizzlies, a game that the um, Nets lost on Wednesday, he had 43 points and 8 rebounds. So you take a look at Kyrie, you take a look at KD, man. That's a squad right there that nobody, I mean nobody, wants to play moving forward. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with me. With us, let me end with this. The Kansas City football team, what teams won't do to prove that their high number one draft pick ultimately will work out, right? The Kansas City football team traded Tyreek Hill, wide receiver Tyreek Hill, to the Miami Dolphins. Kansas City received five picks for Hill, a 2022 first-round pick, which is number 29, the second-round pick, which is number 50, and four and a fourth-round pick plus a fourth-round and sixth-round pick in the 2023 draft this past Wednesday, the deal makes Hill the highest-paid wide receiver in NFL history. As soon as he got over to Miami, they said, congratulations, here's a $72.2 million check, fully guaranteed for three years starting in 2023. So he's entering. Hill is entering his final year with a three-year $54 million extension that he signed in 2019. Easy. Why was the trade made? Tyreek wanted to get paid, and Kansas City was like, we just can't go. We can't go ahead and do that. When Devontae Adams got traded to the Las Vegas Raiders and signed that contract, five years, $140 million, Tyreek said, what about me? When am I going to get mine? It's about time for me to get mine. So according to people with knowledge of the situation, he became frustrated with the lack of progression that was going on in terms of doing something as a deal and then Hill went out and said you know what time for me to go man and Kansas City said all right we'll go ahead and we'll accommodate you so they made out deals with the New York Jets and with the Miami Dolphins put them in front of Kyrie uh, Tyreek and said choose one and he said eeny meeny miny mo New York it is not where I want to go I'll go to Miami so there you go Miami no state tax hello the state of Florida so there you go, man. And it's a situation where I think, look, if you're Kansas City, this is a move that you had to be made only because we can't pay the going rate for Tyreek Hill because now the contract for Patrick Mahomes is going to be kicking in. We have an offensive line that we need to maintain, and pretty soon they're going to be coming up for raises. So if we're going to go ahead and keep this team in terms of being at a level to where we can win championships, we can't have a situation where our, offense, our offensive line moving forward is going to make 
Last season's Cincinnati Bengals offensive line looked like the 1976 and 77 offensive line of the Oakland Raiders. And then have our franchise generational all-time great quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, who we're paying close to half a billion dollars, get pounded time after time. But Tyreek Hill, who's getting paid, is going to be still on the team. We can't do that. We can't do that. So we have to uh, go ahead and make some decisions. And if you're the Kansas City football team and you have Patrick Holmes, this is a situation where, yeah, we're paying you all this money because guess what? We're paying you this money because we don't need somebody like a Tyreek Hill. It would be nice, but paying Tyreek Hill at that money is not what we're all about. If we're going to be paying you the type of money that we're paying you right now, Patrick Mahomes, so the amount of money that we're paying you, your responsibility is to take a Juju Smith-Schuster and to take a McCole Hardeman and to take whoever we draft in the NFL, uh, uh, upcoming NFL draft at the wide receiver position, and turn them into something to where we are still a potent offense and are still allowed to compete for championships. Because if we pay Tyreek Hill this type of money and we leave you unprotected, we are not doing our due diligence in terms of uh, you know making the most out of our investment. And if you're the um, if you're the Miami Dolphins. You had to go ahead and you had to do these things because you have to prove to your fan base, and most importantly, if you're Chris Greer and these guys, you're going to have to somehow, some way, save face and save your reputation by doing everything humanly possible that you can to save the career of Tua Tungabailoa. Because right now, you guys are the clowns who are going to be the answer to the question, who in the hell passed up on Justin Herbert when they had the opportunity to draft, to draft him and instead drafted Tua Tungabailoa? Because in five years, ten years from now, in the 2028 season or the 2031 season, when Herbert has won the third MVP award and he's running this league and the Los Angeles Chargers are NFL champions or one of the elite teams in the NFL, and meanwhile the Miami Dolphins are on their eighth journeyman quarterback to try to get it right, how much is that going to sting? How much is that going to hurt when you know that the guy who's running this league this generational great quarterback who's going to go down as one of the best quarterbacks of his generation, Justin Herbert, you had the opportunity to draft him, but instead you drafted Tua Tungabailoa, a guy who you thought was going to be able to turn your program around so much that your owner was trying to pay the head coach to lose football games so you could get into a position to get him. You got him anyway, and now we found out, compared to Justin Herbert, he stinks out loud. So if you're Chris Greer or everybody in that organization, man, we have to do everything humanly possible to get this right. Because I don't want to be a part of that punchline. I don't want to be the Billy King of the NFL. You know, I don't want to be this generation's Mike Lynn. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be Mike Lynn while the Los Angeles Chargers are the Cowboys and Jimmy Johnson when you speak about the trade for Herschel Walker back in the day, which basically the draft picks helped build the Cowboys dynasty under Jimmy Johnson before Jerry Jones wrecked it all up. So that's the deal with that pick. Now um, for um, Miami, you have Jaden Waddle, you have Tyreek Hill. Man, you have some guys now that can uh, really take a slant, take a bubble screen, and take a short pass and uh, turn it into something magical and turning it into to something big. So let's see what's going to be happening. The Miami Dolphins have made improvement, but if uh, Tua doesn't get it right, I mean, no more excuses. I don't want to hear about injuries. I don't want to hear about anything else. If he doesn't get it right with this squad, with this team that he has right now and the weapons that he has right now, 
I don't know what to tell you if you're a Miami Dolphins fan in terms of was drafting Tua over Justin Herbert the right deal. Mm. The answer would be no. All right, I'm out of here. I want to thank everybody for listening to the podcast. Again, go ahead, Wendell's World in Sports. Wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, download, subscribe, rate, review, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to. Go ahead, subscribe, like this podcast. I've got more of them coming up. My name is Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. Always remember, please do what you can to have a difficult conversation with someone from a different race, gender, background, financial background, different part of the globe, uh, political affiliation, uh, religion. Please have that conversation so we can educate ourselves and leave a legacy of unity and peace for everybody, for our children, since we screwed it all up. If we could do that, that would be great. Wendell's World in Sports. My name is Wendell Wallace. Music. Thank you.